Welcome. Thank you for listening to Clear Bible. We are a ministry supported by New Joy Fellowship and Life Together Churches and me, Tom Hilpert, and we're really glad that you are listening. Right now I'm preaching from the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and this is part 19 in our book of 1 Samuel. And so I'm going to read to you at least some of the chapter, and we will see... uh, we're going to stop at the end of chapter 18. So, and I, I won't read you all of the verses, but I'll kind of do a little bit like what I did last time where I summarize some things. But before we get started, let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word again. As we say every time, we, we're so grateful that you have given us a, a revelation of yourself, that you have showed us a part of yourself through the Bible so that we can get to know you and understand you better and receive grace through this word that you've given us. I pray that all those things would happen right now as we look at your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, by the way, sorry, this is at the very end of the, uh, the David and Goliath incident after the Goliath is killed and everything, and Saul says, whose son is this? And they brought David to him to find out who his dad is so they can maybe do these negotiations for what Saul has promised. And then it picks up uh, chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before all the people. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And so I'm just going to pick up and tell the story briefly after this. Saul uh, then says, Oh, by the way, yeah, that's right. I promised that you would marry my daughter. Here's my daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife. But, you know, you really need to 
to continue to be my soldier and, and fight for me if that's going to happen. And Saul actually was thinking, hopefully he'll get killed one of these days in the battles that he's all out fighting. But David wasn't killed and Saul actually changed his mind at the last minute and had his daughter marry somebody else. Remember those days, the, unfortunately, the, the women really didn't have a lot of choice. They were, their marriages were arranged. And of course, they were arranged for the young men as well. But so it was the fathers who did the arranging and Saul changed his mind and wouldn't let his daughter, his oldest daughter, marry David. And then he found out that his youngest daughter actually loved David. And apparently there was some mutuality there because Saul thought, okay, I can, I can make this work. <clears throat> and he, and I'm going to pick this up uh, in verse 21. So Saul was thinking about his youngest daughter, Michael. He thought, let me give her to him and she may be a snare for him. And so the hand of the Philistine might be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all the servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words to the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of, the Saul, of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he might be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So basically Saul is saying, Well, if you want to marry my daughter, you should marry my daughter, but I'm not going to charge you any money. I'll tell you what I'll do is you, uh, you go fight the Philistines. You kill a hundred of them and bring me, mutilate their bodies and bring me the proof that you've killed them. And David actually went out and, and did this. And uh, actually he doubled the number. He killed 200 Philistines instead of a hundred. And Saul reluctantly let his daughter then marry David, but he became even more afraid of him. He became continually David's enemy. So I'm going to stop there and let's let's just take this a little bit piece by piece. In number 11 in this sermon series, we, we talk about 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we saw that Jonathan, the son of Saul, was actually very different from his father. Jonathan was a man of faith, very much like David. And in chapter 14, we saw him do something very similar to what David with did with Goliath, where he said, hey, the Lord can use one person, me if he wants to, to deliver the whole nation of Israel. And so Jonathan went and started a battle that ended up, you know, destroying the Philistine invasion force at that point in time. He trusted God in very much the same way that David did. And so after David killed Goliath, Jonathan is like, wow, I love this guy. He's we're kindred spirits. We're, we're brothers' spirits. And you might wonder, if Jonathan had that kind of faith and he was that kind of guy, why didn't he fight Goliath? And we don't know. It doesn't say so. Clearly, God wanted David in the picture at this point, and it was, it was the will of the Lord for David to do this. But I also wonder if part of what happened sort of in how that worked out was that Saul forbade Jonathan from fighting Goliath because he was the son of the king. He was going to be king after him, Saul thought. And so he, he didn't want to risk Jonathan's life in that way. Saul probably didn't have the faith to let his son do that. But anyway, when, when Jonathan sees David do this to Goliath, he's like, yes, finally, somebody else who gets it, somebody else who's like me. 
And so he approached David. He had no pretensions as the king's son. He he made a covenant with him. And I want to say this, even though David was the hero of the day, he killed Goliath, and that was pretty amazing. That was cool. At this point in time, David wasn't anybody special. Yes, he'd done this one amazing thing, but he was still the eighth son of a shepherd, right? He's, he's nobody. But Jonathan, the prince, the son of the king, reached out to him and, and made a covenant of really of grace and love with him. He, a covenant is a solemn agreement. And it doesn't spell out in the text exactly what that covenant was, but maybe it was a little bit like the old uh, Native American blood brother tradition because certainly they became lifelong friends. They were inseparable in spirit. They were loyal to each other in spite of many difficult circumstances that could have come between them. And David continued to be loyal to Jonathan's memory even after Jonathan died. And so Jonathan went to David and said, hey, let's be brothers. Let's, let's do this. And you almost think here was one potential path for David to become king that Jonathan would abdicate in favor of David after, you know, when Saul was time to be done being king. And, and that's a possibility. Of course, Saul didn't let that happen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. In addition to making this covenant with David, Jonathan gave David, remember only Jonathan and Saul, or sorry, only Jonathan and, yeah, Jonathan and Saul had this precious Iron Age battle equipment, and Jonathan gave some of that to David. Said, you take this, you take my sword, you take these things. And he also gave David his robe and his belt. And in those days, those types of things, robes, belts, uh, one way to interpret the word belt could also be tunic. But any of those things, robes, belts, tunics, were quite precious. Remember, they didn't have any textile factories. There was no mass-produced clothing, no mass-produced cloth even. Every piece of clothing had to be meticulously, painstakingly made by hand. Now, Jonathan was the son of the king, and Saul's family was somewhat wealthy even before he became king. And so we would assume that Jonathan probably had more than one set of clothing. However, David, remember, is the eighth son, the youngest and the eighth son of a poor shepherd. He's nobody. And it's very, very unlikely that he had more than one set of clothes. And the set of clothes that he had was the set of clothes that he wore when he was out with the sheep. And then he comes along and Saul wants him to be a member of the court because he's popular. And, I mean, really, he's got nothing to wear, right? Nothing that's appropriate for the court of a king. So Jonathan gave David a robe to wear over his other clothes, probably in a belt or a tunic, so that he could be at Saul's court without embarrassment. And I want to pause right here. We'll, we'll come back to this, but I just want to highlight right here. When we read the Old Testament, I always want to ask, can we learn anything about Jesus from this passage of Scripture? Even though it's not directly about Jesus, does this remind us of anything about Jesus? And it certainly does. Jonathan reminds us of Jesus, at least in this particular part of the text. David, again, was the least honored son from a poor family. And Jonathan, the son of the king, clothed David so that he could stand without shame in the presence of the king. Does that remind you of anything? Think about 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's kind of a fancy way of saying God took the righteousness of Jesus. He took our sin and put it on Jesus, and he took the righteousness of Jesus and put it on us. Just as Jonathan imparted his own clothes to David so that he could feel that he belonged in the presence of the king in the court, so Jesus gives us his own righteousness so that we can stand without fear or shame in the presence of God. And so through Jonathan, this text reminds us of Jesus, how God has reached out to us. God made a covenant of grace with us. We're nobody, but God reached out and made a covenant with us, secured by the death of Jesus Christ. All right, let's keep going. After Goliath was killed, remember the Israelite armies then attacked the Philistines, and the Philistines ran in terror, and the Israelites actually pursued the battle all the way to the gates of the walled cities of the Philistines. And this was actually the first time that the Israelites took the battle to Philistine territory. Before this, we'd seen the Philistines invade and the Israelites would drive them off, partly due to Saul's lack of faith. They never did take the battle all the way into Philistine territory, but this time they did. And as they returned from the fight, the people celebrated and, and the women sang songs of victory and joy. And in their songs, they sang, Saul has killed a thousand, David has killed 10,000. And if you remember when we looked at the book of Psalms, Hebrew poetry and Hebrew song even is not about rhyme and rhythm and meter like English poetry often is. Instead, Hebrew poetry is all about parallelism. And in parallelism, you share one important thought and then you restate that thought in a slightly different way once or twice or even more times. It's called parallelism. So that's all that's happening here in this song. Saul has killed thousands, David ten thousands. It's just restating the thought in a slightly different way. It's absolutely typical of Hebrew poetry and Hebrew songs. And Saul should have known this. In fact, Saul had to have known it. He must have known it. It was just a song. That's the way songs go in Hebrew. But it bothered him. And there was a faith opportunity here for Saul. He could trust that God was the Lord of both him and David, that even now God would be merciful to him as he had been merciful to him by using David to ease the, the trouble that was on Saul from the evil spirit. Again, God had used David to, to, to deliver Saul from that torment of mind, just that he has now used David to deliver the whole country from the scourge of that giant and the scourge of the Philistines. And so Saul could have been thankful for what the Lord had done through him and for the whole country through David. But instead, it bothered him, and he gave in to doubt and insecurity. And so the next day, we have uh, some Saul again having one of his raving fits caused by the torment of, of the spirit. And remember, God sent David to the court to relieve Saul's anguish, to give Saul the opportunity to learn to trust him. But at this point, something different happens. Instead, when David plays the lyre and sings, it does not help Saul. It makes it worse. So we can see this horrifying progression. First, Saul was God's chosen instrument, and the Spirit of God moved him to lead the people victoriously against their enemies. I don't know if you remember that very first battle, Jabesh-Gilead. God did some amazing things through Saul. But then Saul began to give in to insecurity a little bit, and he tried to manipulate the people through religion. He even tried to manipulate God. 
And then the next time he stopped seeking God whenever it became inconvenient to do so. <clears throat> and after that, finally, he flat out disobeyed God and then lied about disobeying God. And through that process, he lost his status as God's instrument. But the Lord reached out to him anyway, causing him to be in need and then providing a way to meet that need through David. And again, initially, Saul was able to find hope and relief from God's, through God's Spirit working through David. But now at this point, he, Saul, closes the door on God. And he had no chance of relief because he's cut off all of God's efforts to reach him. And so instead of bringing relief, now David's music makes him worse. And he grabs a spear and he tries to nail David to the wall with a spear. That's sort of the expression in Hebrew. Trying to, I'm going to nail him to the wall with his spear. And now apparently at this point, David thought this was just part of the fit, right? For some reason, the music wasn't working. Saul was still raving and going a little crazy. And he threw the spear at me. I'm not going to take it personally. That's just a fit. So when Saul calmed down, he returned to David's service. Now, before Goliath was killed, Saul promised that whoever killed Goliath would be made rich. He would also get to marry one of Saul's daughters and his family would be freed from taxes. But after David killed Goliath, Saul did not immediately let David marry his daughter. Instead, he added conditions. He said, David has to join the army, prove himself, fight valiantly for me. <clears throat> and David gives this initial response when Saul says, okay, if you fight valiant for me, if you join the army, if you do all this stuff, then I'll let you marry my daughter. And, and David gives this little response, who am I that I should become son-in-law to the king? It was probably just proper form. That would be the normal thing when here David is really a nobody and the king, king promised his daughter, right? But uh, you still want to show appropriate humility and all the rest of that. And so David says, who am I? It was probably just the proper form. It didn't mean that David was refusing the marriage. It just meant he was proving his loyalty and his humility to Saul. But Saul ignored the promise that he'd made and he gave his daughter to be married to another man. And it's possible that Saul did this to try and provoke David into anger, to provoke him into disobeying him or saying something rash or doing something rash so that he could then accuse David of treason and have him executed. But if that was Saul's plan, obviously it didn't work. So then, uh, in the meantime, Saul's youngest daughter had fallen in love with David. And in those days, in that part of the world, the groom was supposed to pay the family of the bride. It's called the bride price. Um, in some ways, is the opposite of the way things were in Europe in the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, where actually the, the family of the bride was supposed to provide money to the groom. This is the opposite. The family of the groom is supposed to provide money and goods and so on to the bride. They did a similar thing in New Guinea. They called it the bride price there as well. In New Guinea, the price was usually paid in livestock, maybe a piece of land, maybe some food and some fruit or, or some, some things that they'd crafted. And this was, this was sort of the normal thing. And it was probably the same way in Israel. The family of the groom was supposed to come up with a bunch of things to give the family of the bride for the privilege of marrying their daughter. Now, when Saul was promising things about killing Goliath, he made it pretty clear that the bride price was the killing of Goliath. 
right? That was, that was what he said. If you kill this giant, you get to marry my daughter. In other words, this is the bride price. Kill that giant. Yet David killed the giant. Saul didn't let him marry his first daughter. And then when Michael was, you know, offered to David, David sort of said in verse 23, basically, that he couldn't afford to become the king's son-in-law. Who am I? Who's my family? You know, we're so poor. Why, why should we become, you know, part of the king's family? And I think in this case, David probably said that as kind of a gentle reminder that Saul had already promised this marriage as a reward for killing Goliath. It would give the opportunity to David, you know, they're saying, David, why don't you marry my daughter? And he says, well, who am I? And my family is so poor. And why, why would you do this? And it's, Saul is supposed to respond with, no, 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 don't worry about it. You've already paid the bride price, I promised, with, with Goliath. But Saul didn't say that. Instead, he actually demanded more from David. David was supposed to kill 100 Philistines, mutilate their bodies to bring back a certain gruesome proof of death. And he was hoping that the Philistines would get so angry about this that they would hunt down David and kill him. None of this is fair. None of Saul's treatment of David from here on out was righteous or godly. David was God's chosen instrument, yet through Saul, the devil was continually cheating David and threatening his life. Even so, David voluntarily paid double what Saul asked. He asked for the proof of a hundred deaths. David gave him proof of 200 Philistines dead. So finally, Saul realized, you know, I, I got to let it happen now or people will really get mad at me, you know, if, thinking I'm going back on my promises. So he let David get married. But even then he treated him poorly. Listen to this. The law of Moses had something uh, pretty interesting to say about war and marriage. This is from Deuteronomy 24.5. When a man takes a bride, he must not go out with the army or be liable for any duty. He is free to stay at home for one year so that he can bring joy to the wife he has married. But Saul made David continue to serve in the army. He violated the law of Moses. He, I'm sure, hurt his daughter by taking away her husband. She loved David. And, and he didn't give David the break that he was supposed to have by the law of God. Instead, he made David continue to serve in the army. So in his hatred of David, he was willing to even hurt his own daughter. I think it's amazing that in spite of all this, David did not become bitter. He did not become disrespectful towards Saul. He didn't even confront him about his false promises or about changing things uh, that he promised to do. Instead, David continued to trust in the Lord to work in him and through him. He continued to do what the Lord put in front of him to do, which in this case was to fight Saul's battles. And through the Lord, David was protected and blessed. So I want to point out a few things that come from this chapter. It's part of a bigger narrative of Saul beginning to treat David worse and worse. So let's start with the negative example of Saul. What we see with Saul is this, when we close the door on God, we open the door to the realm of Satan and evil. And I don't mean that every time that you sin or every time that you choose to go your own way, even when you know God wants you to do something else, that every time you do that, automatically a demon is going to come and torture you. But Saul persistently and deliberately rejected God 
over a period of years, a long period of time, every time Saul had the chance to trust, he chose not to. And he chose to be dishonest rather than honest. He chose to not have integrity, to not trust. And he shut God out over and over and over again. And when he experienced the torment that resulted from that, God sent him help through David. But at this point in chapter 18, Saul is making a deliberate and explicit choice to refuse the help that God is sending. It seems to me that this is recording a time when Saul makes a final decision. I am not going to trust God. I'm done with God. And as a result, God had no way to reach him anymore. And since Saul put himself beyond the reach of the Lord, he was a sitting duck for the devil. Another thing about this is we see the intention of the devil and all his evil spirits, and that is to destroy the work of the Holy Spirit. David was the instrument of the Holy Spirit at that time, and the evil spirit when given control of Saul, took the most direct route at first. Let's just spear the guy. And I think it's really important for us to understand, to recognize the spiritual war that this reveals to us. David was aware of it in the battle against Goliath. He's like, this is a spiritual war. This is about God and, and these people who don't worship God. Jonathan recognized the same thing in his earlier battles. The devil wants to destroy the work of God. Jesus said about Satan in John 10.10 10, that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Peter wrote this. We talk about this uh, maybe a year ago or so now. Be serious. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. This world is not neutral territory. This is a battleground. And all of us who trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. We are now all the instruments of the Holy Spirit like David was. The devil can't kill us all. He doesn't have permission to do that, but he seeks to undo the work that God wants to do in us and through us. We don't have to fear the devil. Jesus has won the definitive victory over the devil. We know that. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 talks about that, but here's another one from Luke 10. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So David says, or Jesus says, the devil has already fallen. We've already won the battle. When you are with me, nothing can hurt you. No evil can hurt you. And that's true as long as we remain in Jesus. So the New Testament tells us to be alert, like I read in 1 Peter there. It tells us to remain in Jesus, like it does in John 15, 1, to resist the devil, James 4, 7, to take our stand against all the powers of evil in the spiritual realms. That's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. So we don't need to be afraid, but we shouldn't be naive either. If the devil could, he would drive a spear through you and me too. And Saul shows us the only way the devil can really get at us. That is when we shut God out. Now, there's no doubt it would have been hard for Saul, given who he was, given his insecurity, to keep on receiving help from David, who we now saw as a rival. But the help was there for him. 
Saul was not willing to humble himself to receive it. He was unwilling to trust God's goodness. And so he put himself into a very bad situation. We have some positive examples in this text too. I mentioned Jonathan towards the beginning, that he shows us a bit of what Jesus is like. He made this covenant of grace with David by giving David his clothes, made him able to stand without shame and fear in the king's court. And again, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. We don't have to be ashamed or fearful in the presence of God. We have the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. David wasn't too proud to receive those clothes. And we too need to give up our own pride, our own rights, so that we can receive the grace that is offered to us in Jesus. There's something else here too. Yesterday and today, I saw some items in the news that really bothered me. People, companies, governments with a lot of power are imposing their ungodly view of the world, their own personal views of the world on other people. And they have so much power and influence. And when I read things like that, I, I feel very worried and I feel angry and I feel anxious about the future. But then I think about today's texts. David was God's own chosen instrument. It was crystal clear. And yet, he encountered massive injustice. The king kept changing the terms of his own promises, making things harder and harder on David, trying to get him killed. And there was no one to hold the king accountable. David had no option but to live with the injustice, and the injustices kept piling up. Even so, the Lord was with him, and there was nothing that King Saul could do that would stop God's work in David's life. We are not promised a life free from hardship, but we are promised that God's presence is with us no matter how difficult things get and whether or not we consciously feel that presence. You hear me? God is with us whether or not we can consciously feel it. And like everybody in this chapter of Scripture, we have to be willing to trust that that's true even when we don't always see it. We tend to look at David as a special person, and of course he was a special person, but what was most special about him is that he wholeheartedly trusted the Lord. And I want to say this, do you know that the, the Lord never loved David any more than he loves you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you, like David, are the chosen instrument of the Holy Spirit. There is no quality of love or grace that God gave David that he would withhold from you. His grace to all of us is overwhelming. David was special to God. You are special to God. Because he is infinite, that can be true of every single one of us who follows him. You are as special to God as David was. The Lord does not love David any more than he loves you. His desire to save each one of us is powerful. And if we look at David again and say he was special, you'd be right but you would be wrong if you think you are any less special. So let's pray.
Holy Spirit, we want to receive that love and that grace that you're offering us. We don't want to be like Saul. We want to be like David who trusted, who experienced bad things but continued to trust, who lived with integrity even when others were not treating him with integrity. Give us the grace to live that way, Lord. Give us the grace to trust you, to surrender our pride, to surrender the ways that we think you've let us down and instead receive your grace and your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.